0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards Podcast. This week, former Bridgewater Associates CEO and 2022 U.S. Senate candidate David McCormick, Republican from Pennsylvania, discusses his book, Superpower and Peril. He outlines his vision for a better future for America. He's interviewed by Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Technology, and International Affairs Program senior fellow John Bateman. This episode is brought to you by Shopify David McCormick, uh, welcome to C-SPAN, and thanks for joining us today on Afterwards.
1: Oh, my pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: So we're here to talk today about your book, Superpower in Peril. Uh, I did wanna say I enjoyed reading your book. You've got some great personal recollections in there, Uh, and you also have a very wide-ranging assessment of what you see as our country's challenges and opportunities, and as a policy wonk, I particularly appreciated your focus on data and technology. And the China relationship. Uh, but before we get into any of that, uh, I thought we might begin with just your personal story. Uh, for viewers who may not have followed your career in politics, finance, and the government, uh, what should they know about you? And how did it come that you ended up writing a book about the state of our nation?
1: Well, again, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, the book was really a um was really motivated by the sense that our country was headed in the wrong direction. I, I started writing it um, a couple years ago before I even decided to run for the Senate in Pennsylvania, which, uh, which turned out to be a very high profile race. But the, the reason I wrote it was because I really feel like I have lived the American dream. I grew up in a small town in rural Pennsylvania where we have some common roots in Bloomsburg uh, and then uh, played sports and, and ultimately had a chance to go to West Point. I grew up, uh, my family had a small farm and I grew up baling hay and trimming Christmas trees and working downtown at the local McGee restaurant. And, uh, and then I went to West Point and and ultimately went on and served in the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, came back, went to graduate school and then, and then went back to Pennsylvania and and ran a a company in Pittsburgh, uh, that became a big tech success story and hired about 600 people in, in Pittsburgh and then went and served in the government for, uh, President George W. Bush uh, in the White House and the National Security Council, and then as Undersecretary of Treasury, and then went and ran Bridgewater, which is uh, one of the biggest investment firms in the world. So uh, when I step back and think about growing up in rural Pennsylvania, I never imagined that I'd have the kind of career that I've had. And uh, as someone who has been so blessed, I felt like I, I might have an opportunity to give back uh, by, by both writing this book, but also running for the Senate. As you mentioned, you
0: did run for Senate in Pennsylvania in 2022 as a Republican. Very narrowly lost the Republican primary to Mehmet Oz by about a thousand votes. Uh, and there's talk of uh, you running again. I know you've said you're, you're considering it. Um, let's, let's get straight into the book. The title is Superpower in Peril. It's a stark title. It's a warning. Uh, why is America in peril and how much
1: peril are we in? Well, you, you, you're right. It's a very stark title, and pe- people it's ominous. And then people say, but I read the book, and the book's optimistic. How do, I, how do I reconcile those two things? And the truth of the matter is, I do believe that we're at a unique inflection point. And, uh, and we are in decline, and I'll describe that in just a minute. But decline's not inevitable, but neither is renewal. It depends on what we do. And this book was meant to first diagnose the problem but mostly lay out a path for what we should do. And I start with uh, the premise that we're in decline across a number of dimensions. Economically, um, we're struggling with um, $31 trillion debt, um, You know, inflation that's at a 40-year high, uh, productivity, which is about half what it's been over the last uh, you know, few decades. And, and most important, uh, most Americans uh, are living paycheck to paycheck, the majority of them think their kids are going to be less well off th- than they are, and 80% of Americans think the country's headed in the wrong direction. That coupled with uh, a challenge from China on the global stage and our military capability in relative terms and absolute terms uh, in decline, and then also a spiritual decay, which I, which I try to highlight, where some of the basic building blocks of American exceptionalism, uh, an economy that's driven by market forces, uh, merit is the key driver in many of our institutions, a belief that America is exceptional. All those things are uh, are being challenged, tested. And for that reason, um, I conclude that we are in decline. And uh, and while uh, decline is not inevitable, uh, we really need to act uh, to turn things around. And, and that's what the book's about.
0: You've laid out a wide variety of assessments on economics, on the state of our spiritual life in America, our politics. So, you know, this may be a difficult question to answer, but I'd love your take on when did this decline begin? When did we peak and stop uh, improving as a country and begin on what what you see as this slide? Because I think people's answers to that often can be quite illuminating.
1: Yeah, it's a a really good question. And I think different dimensions of our decline have come about on different timeframes, but I, but I think the peak of American power in the world, um, America America's role in the world, uh, and American strength in relative terms, both economically and, and from a national security perspective and military perspective, really happened probably uh, about the time of uh, of the first Gulf War, and I I make that point that this is sort of the unipolar moment. And then um, there's lots of aspects of our economy that have continued to prosper, but the the financial crisis in 2008 was obviously a challenge. And I make the case that um, our economic circumstances have gotten much worse over the last couple years uh, because of what I believe are policies that have taken us in the wrong direction, both a combination of extreme spending um, that's been across uh, both Republican and uh, democratic administrations, but certainly has really uh, excelled in the last couple of years, but also a very easy monetary policy that's persisted you know, for more than a decade. And the combination of those two things that put us in and, and a, a very um, uh, overwhelming um, regulatory state, which I try to talk about, administrative state and the regulatory landscape that's gotten much worse for businesses, which has also uh, cramped our productivity and so forth. That combination of things... I think has contributed to our current moment. So there's certainly much of this has been in in the building, but I also point uh, to a number of things that I think are the byproduct of, 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 of an ideology, which is taking us in the wrong direction.
0: The choice of the unipolar moment in 1991, I think is very evocative for a lot of reasons. First of all, there's some connections there to your personal story. As you said, you um, were uh, an army officer who served in the Gulf war. Um, But, Geopolitically, sometimes when people talk about this unipolar moment, the phrase moment is meant to suggest that perhaps it was inevitable that we could only be the unquestioned global power with with so much hegemonic influence over the world's economy, military affairs, diplomacy uh, for such a brief period, and and that it was inevitable that other powers would rise to challenge us, that this is a natural state of affairs. Um, And also, if we think about the global economy, that, you know, developing countries, uh, which once included China, often grow faster than developed countries like the United States. And so the process of globalization would create a certain kind of leveling effect. So I guess my question for you is, um, should we aspire to another unipolar moment, or should we be trying to adapt to a more multipolar world
1: or something in between? It's more something in between because there's relative and absolute. But from the moment that that we're talking about, um, two things have happened. One is uh, decay within, um, and so many of the challenges that uh, we're experiencing in terms of our own power, our own economic strength, our own military strength, are the byproduct of bad decisions at home. And I try to highlight this uh, with, in particular. Uh, uh, education. So sort of the thesis of the book is we need to educate our people. We need to confront China. We need to secure the country. And, uh, and I have policy prescriptions for what I mean by that. But our educational system is a good example of decay from within. So we're ranked something like 22nd among industrialized countries um, in terms of our education system for our children. Um, there's a number of things that I think are eroding um, the, the quality of that education. And one of them is civics, and the way we're teaching American history and America's role in the world. So there's a number of things that are internal, our are, are debt issue and the economic policies that have contributed to it. Those are things we're doing at home that are leading to a uh, decline. And I talk about an agenda for going to the gym, as I describe it, which mm-hmm. is the things we need to do to get American power back. In parallel, as you say, um, the world um, has evolved, and in particular, the rise of China. And of course, as China rose in relative terms, um, there was gonna be economic power and military power that went to China and other places. So that unipolar moment in relative terms was always gonna evolve and become more multipolar. But what's happened with China in particular is an evolution that's very much running counter to American interests. The hope of how China would evolve has not, not come to pass. And China's become a techno authoritarian model that both challenges uh, the United States economically, militarily, but also in terms of geopolitical influence. And in particular, China's leadership on technology, which, as I point out in the book, is is really quite astounding. You know, there's was a recent Wall Street Journal article that described uh, uh, an Australian think tank that just did an analysis of 44 key technologies for economic prosperity and military strength. China was in the lead in 37 of the 44, according to uh, to um, uh, this, this independent group. So that's the byproduct of, uh, of, of China's evolution and its strategy. China has a plan uh, for displacing the United States as a global superpower. And it's also a byproduct of policies and choices we've made in terms of how we dealt with China, which, it, which in retrospect were misguided.
0: Well, I want to ask about China. Let me just ask one more question about your big picture perspective on the United States right now. Um, You mentioned the statistic that 80% of Americans think that we're on the wrong track. And this is something I was thinking about as I read your book. In many ways, Americans are united in a belief that our country is in peril and facing unprecedented danger. And a lot of what you laid out, many Americans would agree with. The concern about rise of China, decline in economic prospects. Uh, But in many other ways, Americans disagree about the nature of the peril that we're in. Um, And maybe that actually gets to the heart of domestic political divides. A lot of Democrats, for example, would really focus in on two perils that don't get a great amount of attention in your book. Um, One is threats to American democracy, as typified by January 6th, uh, and the other is the existential threat of climate change. So what's your assessment of these other perils? And what would your message be to Americans that have a different perspective or rank ordering of why our country is in danger today?
1: Well, I think the um, the the polarization I try, I I do try to address this head on. I think we have uh, divisions within the conservative movement and the Republican Party and and obviously divisions across the country. But one of the things I try to highlight is that the last 20 years in particular have been um, not great for a huge part of our population. Um, you know the economic uh, well-being of many Americans if you held assets over the last 20 years you've gotten a lot richer but but only a small percentage of Americans own assets and for the large majority something like 85 ninety percent real incomes have remained flat and inflation's pervasive and the fentanyl that's coming across the border is coming into those communities so I think the um, the the lack of um, confidence in our future the belief that america is headed in the wrong direction there's lots of reasons i'm not trying to make it single-minded but i think the fact that the american dream the idea that you can um if you work hard and play by the rules you can get ahead your life's going to be better it's just not working for many many americans and so you know i learned as a ceo a long time ago there's a lot of problems you're trying to solve but, but I've tried to zero in on the things that I thought would make the biggest difference in terms of uniting our country. And I thought the, the couple of things we could probably unite ourselves around, both as a conservative movement, but, but as a country, is the desire to have dynamism in our economy, the desire to have opportunity for all. By the way, that economy that I just described has been particularly uh, disadvantageous to blue collar workers, to minorities. So the vision that I'm trying to lay out is saying the long pole in the tent is this combination of policies around talent, around technology, leadership, around data, that's going to create the biggest uh, opportunity for the largest majority of Americans? And I think that becomes the basis for uh, unifying. So that's one point. Um, the second point I try to highlight in the book is that I, I do agree that 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 more and more there's less um, underlying. Um, I don't say call it girding, call it uh, sinew, muscle that brings Americans together. And in the final chapter of the book, I try to talk about the idea that we need a common set of experiences united by patriotism, united by our belief in America that brings Americans together regardless of their political orientation. And I talked about the military as one such institution. I remember as a platoon leader, I had you know, a rural kid from Alabama, an African-American kid from Newark, a platoon sergeant from Puerto Rico. I, I served with those people. We went to Iraq together. Um, I never remember having a political conversation, I couldn't have told you who was what politically. And so I think one of the problems in our society is we don't have a common set of experiences as as we did earlier in our society, and earlier in our history, that bring us together. And I propose some things that we might want to consider. But but at least those are two things that try to address what, what I believe is at the core of, of some of our fundamental division.
0: So, so let's get into China now. Uh, China is uh, a huge focus of your book, um, you've had a lot of personal dealings with China uh, in the Bush administration, um, as a CEO in the financial sector, um, in other capacities. So how should Americans think about China's role in the day and role in the world today at, at a high level and, and the U.S.-China relationship? Um, what What big picture would you say to the everyday American about how they should understand China?
1: I think that uh, what, what has happened is there's been decades of viewing china through a through a lens where as china's economy grew it would create opportunity for u.s businesses and um and and china would be a way of uh creating low-cost goods and services for american consumers and it would be you know as, as china succeeded uh, america would be the beneficiary and what we've seen and i i think and i try to highlight in this book i think president trump actually Uh, did a good job of changing the conversation and calling out China for being an adversary as opposed to just a competitor. And that adversary um, is proceeding with um, a strategy, a global strategy to um, grow in economic terms and military terms and, and with political influence in a way that is disadvantageous to the United States. And so it's an adversary. Now, that evolution has taken place, and I think it was obvious a lot earlier than both political parties recognized. but So you had a growing divergence of interest between China and the United States. The bet that we took where China would continue to open its markets to U.S. companies, that China would stop stealing through intellectual property violations and so forth, that bet was was proving to be wrong for a number of years. And so we were too slow as a country to accommodate that. But where things really took a turn for the worse was when President Xi came to power. And the outline of a strategy, which was to have technological leadership and to place uh, displace America and the world became more clear. And so the first thing Americans should know is, hey, this is a real adversary. China is proceeding down a path which is bad for America. And so we need to adjust. We need to evolve. We need to have a strategy to confront China. And so I try to lay that out in the book. um, And I'm happy to go into that if you'd like. But that's the answer to the question. Um, China has a plan. Uh, We don't have a plan. This book uh, is meant to, among other things, lay out such a plan.
0: I want to ask you about the implications of defining China as an adversary rather than just as a competitor. And maybe I could ask it this way. Um, A lot of times when we think about China, there's so many different concerns that the U.S. has. Uh, Their military buildup and intentions in Taiwan, Um, their uh, unfair uh, economic practices and IP theft, human rights the list is very long one. Are we still at the stage where each of these concerns can be delimited and perhaps negotiated over in specific areas? Or in your view, have we moved into a world where the concerns with China are so broad and deep and intractable that the problem is really China's power and that we should be seeking to constrain and contain China in a fundamental way?
1: Well, I, 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 would, I would sort of object to that either or kind of framing. I, I would basically say, listen, um, the notion of treating China as simply a competitor, the idea that with engagement, China would correct its intellectual property theft, the, the idea that it would constrain its military ambition, the idea that it, it would uh, be, a, be a, a, a friendly, serious competitor, but a friendly competitor as opposed to an absolute, that, that's been the strategy. Essentially, the alternative you lay out is is what we've been doing, and what's happened during that time is that China's economic strength has not only grown, but it's grown in these areas of technology, which in many ways are zero-sum, artificial intelligence, quantum science, satellite technology, 5G we saw. That is a zero-sum game in the sense that China's leadership there comes at the expense of American interest and china's um aggressive behavior uh, globally um we see it most recently with china uh, in one week brokering an agreement between saudi arabia and iran while simultaneously uh, having president xi uh visit putin and uh and reinforcing putin's ambitions with ukraine and in europe so so a passive strategy hasn't hasn't prevailed and so yes we need to uh, have a more, much more confrontational approach It needs to be measured. It needs to be firm. It needs to be steady. And it needs to have two pieces to it. Uh, One is we need to do the, the work at home. We need to go to the gym. We need to build our strength. The best thing we can do to combat China's aggression is to be strong, be strong at home. We can do a lot of that regardless of what China does. And then we need to confront China abroad. And I lay it out in a chapter in the book on confronting China where I essentially say we need to decouple in strategic areas like semiconductors or pharmaceuticals, where we're dependent on China. We all learned, um, I think to what many of our surprise, how dependent we are in China or uh, Taiwan, which is 90 miles from mainland China, for semiconductors as an example, or for pharmaceuticals, that's one. Two, we need to be much more forthright in terms of holding China accountable for bad behavior. And the two uh, areas I highlight in the book are Uh, Human rights abuses with the Uyghurs. We need to speak speak um, clearly and strongly on that. But also, COVID. I mean, this is uh, to me uh, an area where China has been completely resisting any accountability, any transparency on the origins of COVID. The idea that we couldn't even have the notion that the Wuhan labs were connected to the potential virus created uh, in uh, in Wuhan, and the idea that we don't have transparency on that, despite. Uh, the belief from our intelligence services that there is a connection or a possible connection. That's the second thing we need to do. The third is we need to have investment review process, which stops U.S. companies from investing in China, particularly in ways that directly uh, is against U.S. interests. So, for example, today, there are Silicon Valley venture capital firms that invest in artificial intelligence Ah, uh, companies in China that work directly with the PLA and the Communist Party—that—that's—that makes no sense. It's unacceptable. And then finally, we need to have a much more carefully orchestrated and explicit set of strategies with our allies, like Japan, like Australia, and others, for confronting China's aggression. So, that's the kind of uh, comprehensive whole-of-nation strategy I think we need to be able to to deal with the rise of China and uh, the growing. Aggression of China. And I think by doing so, we greatly increase the likelihood of being able to coexist uh, with China in in the world, but only through a position of strength.
0: So let's zoom in on this uh, strategic decoupling uh, concept. Uh, I think something like strategic decoupling is is clearly well underway already. Um, And uh, a lot of people would advocate something along the lines of what you suggest that. Uh, we should pare back what we might view as high-risk economic connections with China in the areas of sensitive strategic technology. Uh, And you mentioned a few of those areas, and you talk about more in the book. Uh, I think often where the rubber meets the road is where do you draw the line? How do you differentiate between uh, the most strategic technologies and others that could be safe or even beneficial for the United States and for the world to continue engaging and trading in China? How do you think about that?
1: Well, first of all, I think the you you skip past a really important point, which is you said everybody pretty much agrees. That's true, but look what a remarkable change that was. I mean, just look at how incredibly dependent our supply chains have become, and 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 in a matter of a few short years, we have a significant reckoning. And I think that's important because it shows how flawed we were for so long in terms of not recognizing this threat and how highly dependent we had come almost, become almost in ways that we didn't recognize. So yeah. now how to think about that. Um, so I, in my mind, I sort of have c- concentric circles and, uh, and whether you know, we need to sort of figure out where we are in all the concentric circles today or not, I think there's obvious things. There's obvious things that, that we need to start with like semiconductors, like many of those 44 critical technologies, satellite technology, artificial intelligence, night vision, robotics. Many of these are, are already managed through um, the export control area of the Commerce Department, where mm-hmm. I, where I uh, was formerly the undersecretary. But, but what's happening now is we need to be much more stringent uh, about making sure that U.S. companies aren't supporting the indigenous growth of those sectors in, in China, but also that we have much more holistic strategies for ensuring we're not dependent abroad. So when I think about concentric circles – I think within the center of the, that, that goes are those technologies which are so critical that we need to have the capability at home. And uh, semiconductors is a, is a good example of that. We need to be much less dependent on the global supply chains and much more rooted in some indigenous capability at home. Then there are other technologies which we may not wanna rely on China, but we'd be more comfortable, uh, technologies or other uh, goods and services where we're we, our closest allies. Um, uh, the Five I uh, countries, as an example, or some of our closest allies in Europe, where we would uh, be dependent on those supply chains, but supply chains within our closest a- alliance group. This is this trusted network concept that uh, that Keith Kroc had uh, put forth in the in the Trump administration. I think it's a good one. So that's the second probably concentric circle. And then there are there are other things that are that are less significant. And this is where my positions may differ from from some. Um, uh, with regard to China, but I don't think it's practical or likely that we can completely decouple, nor do I think we should. So, uh, you know, when I'm on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania, um, I, I heard this, uh, up close and personal. So I'm in uh, York and, uh, I'm at a machine shop that builds frames for Harley Davidson, uh, motorcycles, frames on the back where you put your luggage and things like that. And the guy said, listen, Most of the big market for Harley Davidsons for the for and and our uh, uh, work that we're doing is China, and I I don't think there's anything wrong with us having continued commercial ties and engagement around those non-strategic areas. Just as a practical matter, there's many millions of American jobs that are related to that, and I also think there's not a huge strategic advantage. It may be the same with even natural gas and some other things, dairy products and so forth. So mm-hmm. I'm not arguing for a complete decoupling. Some, some are, and I, I, I think it's a, a reasonable discussion to have. What I'm arguing for is a hierarchy of needs in line with those concentric circles where you're asking yourself, not just whether it's China or not, but where within the global supply chain we want the capabilities to reside.
0: First of all, I totally agree with you that there's been a huge sea shift, shift in the conventional wisdom, conventional thinking around China in the last 10 years. And it's been so rapid that I think it's been bewildering to people. And that's why the issues that you're writing about are so live and in debates in Washington right now. Um, so you've talked about some of the ways in which we might decouple and some of the ways in which we might hold on to um, particularly U.S. exports to China. And you know, I'm hearing things that are maybe... Um, simpler commodities, physical things like uh, natural gas, uh, Harley-Davidson's. I want to ask about a couple other examples where there's some well-known US-China technological engagement. So um, iPhones and other Mac products are made in China. Um, Teslas are by and large manufactured in China. Uh, How do you rate those cases? Where would you put that in your concentric circles? Is that more of a risk in terms of U.S. corporate dependence on this uh, government and market, or is that more of an opportunity for win-win commerce?
1: A short answer is mostly a risk, but maybe not for the reasons um, that would be implied in that answer. The the first on iPhones, I think the the much broader issue there is is data. And uh, and I, I try to highlight this. I have an entire chapter in the book on data. And that's a subset of the broader problem where China has a strategy for domination of data. Data is a huge strategic asset. I, you know, I make the point that uh, the Economist ha- had this uh, headline: "A data is the new oil." Not quite. It's of equally, maybe even more significant, uh, uh, importance strategically than oil uh, than oil used to be. But but it's non-rival in the sense that it can be used over and over again. So data power is of huge significance and so when i think about social um, when i think about social media when i think about uh technology when i think about iphones the the first thing in my mind is data and how we both protect our data how we leverage our data for innovation how we ensure privacy and how we ensure that our data ecosystem in america is a huge strategic asset and um, we can get into this further if you'd like but but what's clear now is we don't have a data strategy, and China does. And so I think about iPhones within the context of the global data strategy and what risk and vulnerabilities that creates for us, not as a not much less so as a global supply chain issue in a traditional sense. Listen, the EV market and uh, and what's happening there, I mean, China is it holds a dominant, dominant position. So the simple question there, and it goes back to your earlier point about climate change, if, in fact, we're moving to a world where alternative sources of uh, energy and the uh, o- electric vehicles and so forth become a huge part of the global economy, do we really want um, to be highly dependent on China? How dominant are we prepared to have China be in that? And we're already highly dependent because of rare met- metals and so forth. So, uh, so no, I would be very reluctant to cede such a critical part of America's future to um, an adversary uh, who could ultimately leverage that uh, in a way that, um, that created pressures or um, strategic um, influence on American interest. Let's dig into the data
0: thing further. You have a whole chapter on data in your book, which again, I think is pretty unusual for uh, you know recent US senatorial candidate to be so keyed in on this issue. So I applaud you for that. Uh, You talk about TikTok, which, of course, is a hot topic in Washington, has been for quite some time, Um, and you talk about some of the data privacy concerns around TikTok, and you had a really evocative quote there, because you're talking in the book about how um, the Chinese Communist Party could, in theory, be able to access the data that TikTok has on American users, and you say, quote, some might say this data doesn't matter for national security, but even the most innocuous-seeming information can be used for nefarious purposes, now, what I want to ask you about is if that's true and if we're moving into a world where more and more products are suffused with data, you mentioned in the book that cars are now huge data collection entities. Um, is it how do we then continue to trade with China when more and more products and services will have some kind of a data component? You buy a car, it's a data collection. You buy software, it has data collection. How do, how do we get out of this situation, or does the rising importance of data mean that the strategic decoupling is going to have to get broader and broader over time?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure of the answer to that question, but, but let's start with the basic Premise, which is we don't have a plan. (laughs) You know, there, 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 and and you said I'm a very few Senate candidates. Well, I'm not, I didn't write this book as a Senate candidate. Um, You know, I wrote, started writing the book before I ever Mm -hmm, decided to run mm -hmm. for the Senate. And what I was trying to focus on are the key issues that confront America as we think about America's leadership in the world and American renewal. And um, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say, we literally don't have a plan (laughs) as it relates to data. There is no uh, person uh, who's sort of squirreling away in the National Security Council today or in the Treasury or in the Commerce Department that says, we're all putting this together for uh, a holistic plan for how we use data as a strategic asset. And one element of that, of course, is the vulnerability associated with data from TikTok and, uh, uh, and, uh, and Chinese products, which I think is a profoundly... Um, significant risk, you know, I make the, I make the point uh, of a report of, uh, of the Chinese having access to Fitbit data uh, in Afghanistan, which gave them insight uh, into, uh, you know, what our troops were doing. Or, uh, you know, the innocuous uh, reference I make to TikTok. Um, who knows uh, how um, some of the things that are trending on TikTok uh, maybe influence the uh the opinions or um or or, or the general direction of, of our youth. It's it's an interesting observation that China dramatically restricts the use of TikTok at home uh in ways that are completely unrestricted. And I'm not arguing for restriction mm-hmm. of, of social media for our kids. I think that's a parent's job, not a government's job. But that's an interesting observation. So I'm not exactly sure where those lines would be. When I'm what I'm arguing for is that we need to have a thoughtful, holistic uh, strategy as a country for dealing with that. And at the center of the data strategy should be data privacy, data protection, um, but also recognizing that data and using data um, is gonna be a key driver of innovation. And I'm, you know, I make the point in the book, but just to, for, for your listeners to highlight why data is so important in innovation. One of the reasons America was so successful working with uh, others, uh, in the COVID uh, vaccines was because of the uh, the capacity to share data among those that were researching on this and, and make, you know, compounding breakthroughs. The reason we're all both um, uh, very excited about the possibilities but also deeply troubled by the risk associated with chatbot is that um, the power of this data, if channeled, Uh, in the right direction can have huge consequences. So um, in in a nutshell, I'm saying we need a strategy. And and one of the things the strategy would address is the question you ask.
0: Um, Makes a, a lot of sense, the idea of developing a coherent strategy. And I think two proposals in your book that are particularly timely is a call for national privacy legislation and a focus on privacy enhancing technologies, which if they develop well, could be a way out of some of these dilemmas. Maybe there is a way to safely trade with China if we can figure out the technical answer to having that data protected. Um, I wanna ask about, think, yeah, please I go ahead. I think that's right,
1: yeah. yeah. I think that's right. And you know, listen, it, it, the other thing I highlight, which, um, which, which I think is, is obvious, but I think maybe a controversial notion, but I'll, but I'll just say it is that social media echo chamber is also something that I highlight uh, in the book, uh, in the sense that I do think that we've, and I think there's documentation to support this, and I try to cite that research uh, in the book. But the fact that we have an echo chamber that is that in our social media, but media more broadly, but in social media, which is which is which is left leaning, and therefore even the the marketplace of ideas where social media is becoming such a, a greater and greater um, source. Of news and information for all of us, the fact that that marketplace of ideas um, has an embedded bias, I think, is uh, is detrimental. It's detrimental to the free exchange of ideas, the debate of, around ideas, and, and detrimental um, to uh, trust. That uh, you know, one of the underlying sources of division with, within the country, the polarization you refer to, is a lack of trust. Different people trust lack trust for different things. That's for sure. But one of the things that certainly is a, a big part of the problem um, among uh, conservatives is the belief that the social media world um, is highly biased, and therefore that's no longer a source of information that we can all uh, seek to use as a as a free exchange of ideas. And so that's one of the other things that I try to to talk about in the in the data chapter and say that's something that we have to address head on. I try to offer some ideas on how to do that.
0: You brought up the compare and contrast between, on the one hand, China's doing a lot to regulate its own information space, social media and tech ecosystem. Um, and on, the, on the other hand, you know, we don't want to emulate that model, right? Um, so, for example, you know, with all the concern that we have about the rise of these tech giants, giants in China, it's been astonishing to watch President Xi Jinping's policies destroy the majority of the economic value of a company like Alibaba, um, and others are really on their heels. Um, They're under political pressure, uh, antitrust pressure, regulatory pressure. Um, So does that tech crackdown in China um, give lessons for us in the United States about what to avoid, or does it create space for us to maybe look at the antitrust concerns with our own tech companies with, with less of a fear that there's these Chinese giants immediately breathing down their deck, ready to pounce on any, any kind of restraint that, that we put in place here?
1: Yeah, it's a, re- it's a really good question because it, at, at a higher level, this is a, it's a bit of the contradiction um, that I try to highlight uh, in the book, which is I think by any objective measure, China has made huge strides uh, from a technological perspective, in um, uh, in pursuing leadership, I, I made the reference earlier about those thirty-seven to forty-four technologies. So, the social media technology is one such technology. EVs another, and then there, there are many others. And at this, and, and so um, that leadership is indisputable. That success and progress thus far is indisputable. At the same time. We inherently believe that, um, as, as Americans, and I think those of us who, who are advocates of free enterprise, believe that that system of state enterprises and state allocation of capital can't, in the long run, be as successful and dynamic as, as the U.S. system. And so how do we respond to that from a policy perspective? And what I what I try to lay out, both in the area of data but also technology leadership, is we can't, in in our desire to come out compete china and take on those areas where we must have leadership we can't adopt a china model um we can't out china china and we got to be careful not to take the wrong lessons mm-hmm. from the success Ch- as china has had at the same time there's a, an undeniable reality that they've made huge progress and uh, you you may recall in the book i i lay out a, a strategy for technological leadership mm-hmm. and innovation policy which tries to bring together market forces tax incentives um co-investing to try to draw private capital to the areas that i think we need the most success and i i have a chapters uh, part of the chapter's title what would milton friedman say because milton friedman wouldn't uh, probably agree with uh with what i'm arguing but at the same time i don't think milton friedman or that line of thinking would have good answers uh to our uh current moment and so what, what I'm advocating for here is, and as a conservative and someone who, you know, has traditionally believed in, in small government, limited government involvement, it's basically been the, the pathway to growing success. I think in the area of big tech, we need to uh, be a little more discerning. And we probably need to have the government more involved. Uh, uh, in terms of creating the right regulatory framework, in, in terms of creating the right guidelines, in terms of uh, ensuring that private capital is flowing to the, the areas of greatest geopolitical significance, but not in a, in a China way, not in a way that uh, is overbearing and overarching. And getting that right um, by, um, by imposing the appropriate regulatory framework and, and incentives without um, overdoing it is, uh, is a very difficult thing to do, mm-hmm. and, um, and I acknowledge that. It, mm-hmm. it poses lots of risk. It poses a risk of politicization and so forth. And so I try to lay out some policy ideas, but as you may recall, also a set of principles. Mm-hmm. When in doubt, go back to the fundamental principles that should guide our policy framework. Um, that's a tough thing to get right. I've, I've tried to at mm-hmm. least push forward the conversation. Now, I, I appreciate that, and I'm glad you brought up this paradox That
0: you describe it's so important and interesting on the one hand china seems to represent an unprecedented set of technological and economic threats on the other hand there's a sense that we have as americans that they're pursuing the wrong economic model in some ways or that they um, they have real vulnerabilities a couple quotes from your book that i found really evocative i wanted to ask you about Uh, you mentioned at one point china's extensive internal weaknesses And you ultimately say that, quote, China's economic and political problems far exceed our own, and that you would take our position in this race over theirs any day. Uh, So my question to you is, uh, the United States is in peril. Is China also in peril? Is it possible that both countries are in peril at the same time? (laughs) And
1: what would that mean? Yeah, I think it's a a great uh, way to pose the question. I I do think China... Is in peril in, in the following sense, um, you know what, what was put forth, um, you know over the the previous three or four um, uh, re- sets of leaders was an economic model that would bring, you know Chinese uh, 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 poor Chinese out of the the rural areas and and create a vibrant economy that would be would be good for all. But but part, part of that model was dependent on China continuing to grow. And a big piece of that uh, was the demographics that would allow that to happen. And so you have China uh, with, a, you know, with, a, with a, a top-down economic model that's allocating capital. You have a, an economy that's slowing dramatically and you have a demographic challenge that's gonna pose real risk down the road because you not only have less people coming in the workforce as drivers of economic growth, but you have the burden of the older generations um, on the younger generations and um and you have a statist model that is going to have less ability to respond and you have less bottom-up uh job creation and entrepreneurialism because of the top-down economic model so when you just sort of look at those macro trends that's going to pose real economic challenges which um you know if the theory uh continues is going to put a growing political pressure the the political stability and leadership of the chinese regime depends on that economic model actually working so that's why I think there's mm-hmm. um, there's certainly risk for China now. Our risks uh, are in some ways similar, in some ways very different. Our risk is that um, we won't pursue um, the kinds of policies that are necessary to renew ourselves. I try to. I don't think um, the policies that I'm laying out or other policies for renewal are um, are unprecedented in our system. We've had a history of renewal over and over again, as you know in the book. I go back to this 1970s, which I lived through. So I remember this period quite well, Um, the period uh, of malaise and uh, disillusionment that uh, that was in the late 70s under Jimmy Carter and then uh, the morning in America that took place under Ronald Reagan. And so our capacity to adapt, our capacity to work our way through problems, whether it's the global financial crisis in 2008 or whether it's the pandemic. Time and again, America has shown a capacity to make tough decisions and renew itself. And that's why the book is optimistic, because this is the American tradition. <laughs> we, we get to the edge of the cliff, we pull ourselves back. But it depends on what we do. And so that's why I'm more optimistic about our model than theirs. But, uh, but listen, you know, we could screw this up. And that's I'm hoping the book will encourage us not to screw this up.
0: So you've made a really compelling case here in the, in the uh, book that uh, there was a period of time where the U.S. policy community really underestimated the rise of China and the challenges that might pose to U.S. interests. I want to ask if you see any risk or how do we avoid the risk of the opposite problem of now inflating the China threat uh, beyond where it really is. And I'm thinking of two historical examples. Um, one is with the previous economic rise of Japan, which created a huge economic concern in the United States. Um, and yet, ultimately, that concern reached its zenith right before the, Chinese, uh, the Japanese bubble popped and Japan entered a 30-40-year period of economic stagnation. Uh, you also have the Soviet Union, which is a much more complicated case and was a huge legitimate challenge to the United States across all dimensions. But there were also lots of instances where we overestimated them, uh, with the missile gap, um, with our intelligence community um, overestimating the size of the Soviet economy and also missing the prospects for the Soviet Union ultimately dissolving. Uh, so as China now takes the place of these former economic and national security threats, how do we avoid uh, over-inflating the threat from China?
1: Well, um, it's, a g- it's a good question, and I would mostly agree with um, the two cases you use as, uh, you know, in the end— um, in the end, that the the risk was not, not what um, what the more extreme predictions turned out to be. Although, the part of that is uh, the response to what we did. Part of the Soviet Union's mm-hmm. challenges of of uh, ultimately maintaining its leadership were were in part its inability to sort of ma- maintain and keep up with the United States. But I think the point is the point is well taken, and that's why I start. And I think it's so important that a lot of what must be done is what we must do at home. Um, That's the go to the gym piece. So can anyone dispute that um, uh, our strength, our economic power, our military power is a byproduct of having a great educational system, a dynamic economy, leadership and technology, you know, like all those going to the gym, basic building to to build strength are the kind of things we need to uh, bring back the productivity, the dynamism, the American dream at home. Which also gives us the uh, power mm-hmm, to project mm-hmm. abroad so um so the first part of this is go to the gym and we go to the gym and do the same thing regardless of what China does. The second piece is obviously reducing our dependency on China, which is largely um, what the confront China is reduce our dependency on China and don't help China become even a more powerful adversary right don't 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 make the problem worse by uh, by Becoming more dependent on China, or um, or helping them in key areas, which are going to which are going to challenge us. But all of this needs to be done with wisdom and care. And I, you know, the the, the guy that uh, the guy that you don't want to be is the is you want to be the strong, silent person that um, that is projecting strength, firmly projecting America's interest abroad. Um, we we need to not. Um, look for opportunities to be provocative and create, you know mm-hmm. greater challenges. i'm so I'm advocating for getting tough and strong and firm, um reducing our dependencies and and not supporting China's rise as an adversary, and speaking strongly and and toughly and consistently. What I'm not avo- advocating for is, you know is 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 a uh, is defining American policy solely through the eyes of china. Mm-hmm. but, but, um, if you were going to say, have we aired too little or too much over the last decade, it's been too little. Mm-hmm. So I think this awakening that we're having across parties is good. And, uh, what I've tried to do now is put a very firm set of policies next to the rhetoric and say, okay, now here's what we do. We all agree. We have this problem. Here's what we need to do to make sure we, uh, we renew ourselves at home, but also project our strength abroad. Mm-hmm.
0: On the topic of going to the gym, which is a great metaphor and and so important to prioritize that in the hierarchy of things that the U.S. needs to be thinking about, I'd love to get your assessment of the CHIPS Act. Um, This is probably the marquee effort of the Biden administration and and Congress in terms of the U.S. going to the gym on these issues. Um, And it's our first foray as a country into industrial policy in uh, several generations. So I guess my question for you is, is the precedent of the CHIPS Act, is this foray into industrial policy a good or a bad precedent? And is the model, uh, the way that we're doing it, the right or the wrong way of doing it?
1: Well, um, I, as I say in, in the book, uh, Super Power Pro, I try to differentiate between a China top-down policy and I try to differentiate between traditional industrial policy, which I think the CHIPS Act was largely in the frame of that. And I'll describe mm-hmm. what that means in a minute. So. I think the sentiment behind the Chips Act was good. In other words, we can't, you know, we're, 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 we're uh, competing against these heavily subsidized uh, com- companies and countries abroad. We've got to bring uh, capability home. Um, That's sentiment I agree with. Um, uh, we need to increase basic R&D. That's sentiment I agree with. Um, it's, it's, it's tiny relative what ne- to what needs to be done. So if you said, um, wave a magic wand. What 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 did you like and not like? Um, I think we need to dramatically increase R&D, um, basic R&D um, at a national level. Right now, today, uh, we spend about half of what we spent as a percentage of GDP in 1950. Mm-hmm. And that basic R&D is not um, generally going to be funded by the private sector because the payoff um, on that is much further down there. That is an area like national defense where I think the government should play a role. Um, the second thing about the CHIPS Act is it, was, it, de- it doesn't have a lot of market forces. It doesn't create competition for the allocation of that capital. Um, and the third thing, which I think became more obvious after the fact, is tied to the money that the companies got, the traditional set of companies that uh, received the money, was a set of additional... Um, policies, daycare and diversity and inclusion, a whole set of progressive policies that were tied to the money, which I think is the beginning of a really slippery slope where we're going to impose other policy objectives on uh, this clear policy of making sure that we have the kinds of uh, national security capability, uh, technological capability at home. So um, that those are the failings, in, in my opinion, on the CHIPS Act. So I, I, I think if your question is: Is that a good precedent for what uh, what we need to do going forward? I think um, no, no, not really. Um, I try to lay out in the book the kinds of things I would be encouraging, which are much more attuned to bringing market forces into these key technologies um, and, and addressing the same problem the Chips Act is. Chips Act is trying to do.
0: So, if the Chips Act is the uh, one marquee effort by the U.S. government to go to the gym. Um, The other side of it, in the restrictive measures, probably the marquee effort has been in the realm of export controls, which is a subject you know very well. Um, And there was this great quote in your book where you said, In 2005, my role as Commerce Undersecretary in charge of overseeing export controls was a lonely redoubt at the intersection of national security and economics. I I love that phrase, lonely (laughs) redoubt, because that intersection is almost anyone, uh, almost anyone in Washington today is talking about that intersection And now export controls are arguably, I would say, the primary tool of U.S. foreign policy uh, against Russia, against China and economic statecraft. What what do you make of this transformation of the tool of export controls? And what what advice would you give to folks using that tool today based on your experience using that tool in the mid-2000s?
1: Well, there's, uh, there's, there's two. Uh, yeah, it was a lonely readout. It's so it's so <laughs> ironic now that the, here we are. I guess it's uh, almost twenty years later, and this is the hot, you know, the hot uh, area of policy. But uh, there was a a principle, um, and this has evolved so much. But uh, but and the technologies are evolving so much. You know, I, one of the things I described that my observation when I was in the government in 2005, six, seven, 8 – was this growing confluence between economic growth and dynamism, technological leadership, and national security? Those three areas were um, obviously very interdependent, but they have come together. The confluence of those three things is dramatically different from what it was in you know even eighteen years ago when I was in the Commerce Department. Um, you know, the, the role of five G or the role of artificial intelligence or quantum science. These things. Were sort of conceptual at, at that time, and they become at the core of our national security. Or uh, so, so it's not surprising that policy should need to evolve um, in in fairly dramatic ways to keep up with it. Um, I'd say the two principles. There's so much technology changing and evolving and becoming mainstream and having different uh, implications. This notion we always said was um, high fences around a, you know, a relatively Mm -hmm. small area. So um, the, 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 you know, the risk is with a bureaucracy or with government, you never take away things, you only add things. And, uh, and the whole world shifting in terms of the significance of certain things and so forth. So making sure you have, you have appropriately high restrictions around the things that matter. Mm -hmm. And, but you don't um, continue, it's like uh, this notion of regulation, regulation, we shouldn't just take new things and add new regulations, we should be constantly evolving to look at how our regulatory world should change to accommodate the reality. And that may mean getting rid of regulations. So I think the first notion is that we need to have the right restrictions around the right things and not have a greater number of restrictions around um, a a larger number of things. The second thing that's become a a critical piece of this is just the secondary um, nature of them. So it doesn't really do anything. If America restricts um, certain technologies from being exported, if they export, if we export them to our allies who can re-export them uh, to our adversaries, or if our closest allies are already exporting the same thing that we're manufacturing at home. So it has to be um, a diplomatic effort where our our export control regime has to be one that's coordinated with our closest allies around the world. It's the only way it matters. It's like sanctions. They only matter if they're holistic and coordinated among the key suppliers in the world. And so um, that role now and our strategy and our policy needs to be much more internationalized uh, than it ever was before. And it needs to be incredibly dynamic because the technology is changing at a greater pace.
0: There's um, so many uh, other questions that I, that I had for you, um, and it's been a really rich conversation. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So if uh, viewers, readers want more, they're going to have to go out and get a copy of your book. Uh, thanks again for making time to be on C-SPAN today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction, book publishing industry experts.